Hey guys, it's Liz Kelly, here to tell you that we have a brand new podcast called Halloween Unmasked, premiering Monday, October 1st. Here's a sneak peek. There's trouble in the suburbs. A teenage girl named Lori Strode crosses a quiet street toward an ordinary house to find her friends. But Lori doesn't know that her friends are dead, and she doesn't know that she's walking right toward the masked killer, Michael Myers. The movie is Halloween. And Halloween just, it was like a, it was a breath of fresh, putrid air. He's a pure, unknowable evil. I'm film critic Amy Nicholson, and this is Halloween Unmasked, a podcast series from The Ringer celebrating the remarkable and terrifying rise of America's most revolutionary horror film. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to Halloween Unmasked, and watch your back. I, I think the scariest part was that he doesn't die at the end. So when you're 10, it's like, that guy's still out there. <laughs> we, we gotta get him. Today's episode of On Shuffle is brought to you by YouTube Music. YouTube Music is a new app that combines everything you expect from a streaming service with the magic of YouTube to bring everything to life. With YouTube Music Premium, you'll get ad-free music that plays with the screen offer while other apps are open. Finally. Get music whenever you want it, even when you're offline. Download the new YouTube Music app today and start a free 30-day trial. Then just pay $9.99 per month. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of On Shuffle. I'm your host, Michael Peters, a staff writer at The Ringer, and I want to tell you to bring you the good news that the Carter Five is free. Kanye went on SNL this weekend and disappointed all of us, but at least one of our legends didn't let us down. Donnie Kwok, the Donnie Kwok, is going to be joining me today to talk a little bit about Lil Wayne and the fifth installment of the Carter series. And we are going to do another special edition of Music Recommendations with Chris Ryan, who's going to talk some more about punk music. But first, let's get into Lil Wayne. Sleeping with the enemy, my demons are too intimate. She's sleeping very gently, so now they starting to enter it, and now they starting to mentor me. Geeking like Brittany, tweaking my energy, eating die sympathy, screaming cry infamy. Come alive mentally, and love die physically. My love cried miserably, hugs getting looser, her tongue. For a long time, a long time. I cannot stress how long it was. It was free C5, and now it's backwards. The Carter Five is out. Lil Wayne's 12th studio album. It's also on pace for the third biggest streaming week ever, coming in behind Post Malone's Beer Bongs and Bentley's and Drake's Scorpion, which were also released this year. This should kind of be inevitable for, you know, a rapper of Lil Wayne's stature and critical record, but I can't really stress it. It felt so inevitable. Um, it seemed very unlikely due to a really long period of legal trouble and failed starts of singles and just Lucy's that were kind of uninspiring and, you know, like didn't really give us that much hope for the eventual fifth installment of the Carter series, but it's here. And here to help me talk about it is Donnie Kwok. What up, what up? Can you hear my lighter flicking? <laughs> yes, I can hear your lighter flicking. I, I almost set this microphone on fire. So. <laughs> Wayne is back. So you do agree that he's back, back in terms of, what does back mean exactly? Back as in the focal point of conversation. 
on rap Twitter <laughs> and on the chart and on the charts. Um, I mean, he's never really gone. I mean, he's always been a, a person of intense interest, uh, just because of his catalog and his stature in the game. But at, you know, in, insofar as everybody's dissecting new music and new lyrics by him, he's back. Yeah, like back as an entertainer, as as Rob Harvilla put it in our exit survey, which is on theringer.com right now. Great website. You should go read that. Let's talk about his stature, so to speak. Because, I mean, like for a period of time uh, in the early to mid-aughts, Lil Wayne was, or I mean, like basically all of the 2000s, uh, Wayne was uh, at least in the conversation with the best rapper alive, if not the best rapper alive. That is correct. That is correct. In fact, I used to work at Complex Magazine. I worked there for many years. And right in the middle of the aughts, I think it was January 2006, uh, Lil Wayne appeared on the cover alongside Travis Barker. So that's kind of shows you the mid aughtsiness <laughs> of that cover. But the, the cover line of that issue was famously, I'm better than Jay-Z. Uh, and that was Lil Wayne kind of planting his flag in the ground uh, as the best rapper. And at that time, that title was a little bit up for grabs because if you remember, that was when Jay-Z was about to release or had just released Kingdom Come, which many think is his worst album. So yeah. Wayne had kind of seen that the throne, you know, there was a spot there for him to take. And he was in, he had just released, I believe, Like Father, Like Son, which was the Birdman duet album. Uh, Carter Three was on the way. He had done all of those mixtapes. He was prolific as fuck. And, you know, I think he rightfully claimed uh, himself as the best rapper. Actually, b to bring it back to the mid-aughts, uh, I just reread this interview, this cover story yesterday. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Toshi Kondo, who did the interview. Mm -hmm. uh, Toshi asked Lil Wayne, who are the three best MCs in the game right now? And guess who he said, besides himself? Me, myself, and I. <laughs> <laughs> he, said, he said, myself, Joel Santana, and the game. And then he added a wild card, Jim Jones. Wow. It's very 2006 for you. Yeah. I mean, like, there was that, uh, the collab project that never was, I Can't Feel My Face, uh, the mixtape, which was, uh, right. That's what he was talking by about. Black Republicans that he made with Joel Santana. And then, I mean, like, he was, he's always been doing stuff with the game. And incidentally, right. around that same time, Game was doing those live AOL sessions with Travis Barker playing live drums for the LAX album, I think, eventually. Uh, Travis Barker's little short lived run as like a hip hop icon. I mean, I guess he's still respected obviously uh by rappers but he was like all or he was doing soldier boy shit game shit true but also that cover story wasn't really the first time that he had bucked at jay-z a little bit because on the outro to uh bring it back which was on the first carter album i know you remember that song meatball Great lamborghini song. top spaghetti <laughs> yeah the the um on the outro of that song he says best rapper alive since the best rapper retired yeah because of course jay-z had i mean and, and wayne talks about it in this complex interview like kind of dissing Jay-Z or, or saying Jay-Z like how could you be the best rapper and you retired and you're coming back and you think you're bringing the rap game back and I've been here is basically what he's saying this is also the interview that famously sparked the little Young Money clips beef uh, when he said I don't see no fucking clips and they were talking about babe and selling coke and all of that so kind of a legendary interview also 
we cannot let this section of the of the discussion pass without saying that uh, what was the name of that Jay Z song where uh, the the music video had Danica Patrick in it? Show me what you got. Yep, it was Show Me What You Got, and Lil Wayne freestyled over it on uh, yep. one of the drop mixtapes, and it was honestly one of the one of those kind of like cultural artifacts that really signals to the period of time where like Wayne was rapping like he was possessed. He is the best rapper a lot. And I'm the greatest DJ in the world. Good morning, New York. Good afternoon, New Orleans. We back. Good night, America. <laughs> Young money. Yeah. Know it's what I got, little mama. Know it's what I got, bird lady. Know it's what I got, shawty. Show me what you got, little mama. Show me what you got, per lady. Hands up, I'm paid, I'm paid. He called himself the Mike Jordan of recording. I don't know, it's just like really like this kind of playful freedom where he just completely stopped writing anything down and was rapping with such confidence and dexterity. It was ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the trajectories of Wayne and Hove's respective careers, I mean, that was like a low point for Hove. And that was Wayne... Not at his high point, I would say, but reaching his high point. Which would, I think, in the mind of most people, be the Carter Three, uh, which came out in uh, 2008. Sold a million copies its first week. There's a really good video of it on YouTube where like, Wayne is on the tour bus, just kind of with his headphones on recording and watching sports center <laughs> and like they, Wayne they rush always watching the, ESPN. <laughs> yeah, they rush onto the bus and be like as soon as they figured out that it sold a million copies and he takes his headphones off and he's just like I was recording I didn't even think about that <laughs> like <laughs> the Carter 3 had a Millie right and that I think is basically that's on the Mount Rushmore of Wayne songs and when that song came out that was a game changer as well there was that kind of late 2000s super auto-tune phase where he was just trying literally anything that came to mind good illustrator of this period would be the Dano remix, uh, the sh that Shawty Lowe song where he was just like, like a white person with blue veins. I keep a red dot blue veins. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it was just kind of really free associative, like, even more unhinged than, uh, like, his most playful stuff on the Carter 1 and 2. Yeah, I mean, I feel like at some point a rapper that is that prolific and that dense at some point is going to get a little bit tired of rapping and want to do something else. I mean, like, just sheer density, like, number of words spit over a career. A few are challenging, Wayne. I mean, if you if you go through his entire catalog, all the squad tapes, all the dedications, no ceilings, drought, all of his albums. I mean, Jesus, that's like literally hundreds of thousands of words. There was also the Rebirth album, which I know that you also remember, which came out in... Uh, uh, soon after. I just remember the, the cover where he's like sitting down, leg spread with a 
electric guitar, I believe. It's just like, what is you doing? That was kind of the, <laughs> I mean, that was also a very, very barren time for rap music in general. Wayne has also had a number of other mis- I mean, like he was one of those, he's another one in a long list of rappers that had their career broken up by jail time because um, he went to, well, he pleaded guilty to gun possession and went to jail, went to Rikers in 2010. And during that time was when Rebirth was released, that rock record that had, uh, you know, the the singles Prom Queen and Drop the World that was featuring Eminem. And then also I'm Not a Human Being came out that same year and also almost sold a million copies. Uh, that was That's the one that had right above it on it. I have no recollection of I'm Not a Human Being, so. Yeah, I mean, like it was another one of those things that was kind of cobbled together and floated to, you know, maintain Wayne's relevance while he was inside and right. to tide you over until the Carter Four, which arrived in 2011. He wrote some of it while at Rikers. Do you remember when Six Foot, Seven Foot came out? I do. That was also, you know, that was kind of like the natural successor to a Millie in, in sort of the rhyme patterns, I guess, and and the dexterity of his flow. So that's easily the best song on that album, right? Even if the Carter Four is probably the worst of the Carters from end to end. Yeah, I would say so. After the Carter Four, there was I Am Not a Human Being 2 came out in 2013, and that one had Rich as Fuck on it, the 2 Chains featuring record, kind of like in the early 2010s. Wayne just plateaued for a while. Um, and then came the legal trouble where he sued Birdman for $51 million over unpaid album royalties, uh, holding the Carter Five hostage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of, co- and of course, Birdman allegedly uh, conspired, I mean, allegedly, we should be clear, uh, to have Wayne's tour bus shot up. Uh, and that's actually in the news now because I think the, the case is being tried or reopened or something. 2015 it was. Yeah, the summer of 2015. Which is really crazy because going back to that Complex interview uh, from 2006, a large part of that interview was about the infamous Lil Wayne Birdman kiss photograph Mm. and about how close Lil Wayne was to Baby and how he calls him his father. You know, obviously the the name of their duet album is Like Father, Like Son. So uh, to think at how badly that relationship has deteriorated over the years, it's quite stark to to look at that interview now. Right. And I mean, like in intermittently in the intervening time between then and now, there have been kind of telegraphs towards reconciliation. Sometimes there are photographs smiling together. Occasionally him and Drake and Birdman would all be in the same strip club and, you know, like nobody was fighting and then things were bad again. You see another report about uh, progressions in the legal case over what Wayne was to be fairly paid. And then like also there was after the Carter Five was, you know, slated to be released in December of 2014 
there was in the months leading up to that incident on the bus, uh, Wayne tweeted a bunch of things about wanting to retire, not wanting to be on his label. And then there was the Free Wheezy album, which came out in 2015. That was a title exclusive. I'll forgive you if you missed it. Missed it. But then, I mean, like there was not really much for a long time. A couple of singles that didn't really stick when the Carter Five was, you know, like, announced to be re- you know releasing last the, the Friday before last we were all just kind of like no way but we should also note that in these intervening years where there was where there was no Carter 5 he was still Wayne was still popping up on big records like uh Loyal Chris Brown bunch of DJ Khaled records so it, it wasn't like he was totally absent from the radio or from airplay or what have you Right, which kind of like created this weird space where despite being in everyone's top five conversations, he was still an underdog when the Carter Five was, you know, announced to be released. You know, it's interesting that you say that because you know how like they say when you have a friend, for example, you you always picture them at the age which you met them at. Mm -hmm. And for Wayne, for rap fans, for a lot of rap fans, for myself... I first met Wayne, I mean, you know, figuratively, when he was 15 years old, or 14 even, 15, young, uh, hot boys, early cash money, you know, back that ass up, that type of thing. For that reason, he's kind of stayed in that permanent 15-year-old state in my mind, that kind of youthful exuberance. Uh, and that's opposed, as opposed to somebody like Hove, for example, who was already in his mid-20s uh, when he, you know, first became popular. Uh, and so I kind of have whole frozen in that reasonable doubt uh, age. But for Wayne, I think he's able to, he's been able to stay or appear young because most people remember him first as like a precocious teenager kind of tagging along with Juvenile and, and, and the rest of Cash Money. Uh, and, and for that reason, I, I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily say he's aged gracefully, as it were, in rap, but he's aged in a hip hop way where he hasn't, taken this like socially conscious left turn or changed the essence of who he is he's remained kind of Wayne for 20 years now and I think that that is really his I mean I guess Eminem in a way has done that as well but you know for Wayne it's worked and for Eminem it hasn't maybe when M maybe maybe when Wayne is 46 it'll it'll wear thin yeah but to the album itself which finally arrived last Friday what were your first impressions? What was your first oh shit moment, I guess? My first oh shit moment was when I heard the familiar sound of a great New York classic record, Special Delivery by G Depp. Um, Swizz Beats, quote unquote, produced the record Uproar for Wayne. I think it's track four. Mm-hmm. What the fuck, though? Where the love go? Five, four, three, two, I let one go. Wow, get the fuck though. I don't bluff, bro. Aiming at your head like a buffalo. You're a roughneck. When I heard the little beeps from Special Delivery and Wayne pop up on the track, that's when my ears really perked up. I think that Uproar was, you know, one of the first records that I was very sure that Wayne was fully in his bag because he was rapping about his gun like it was his wife again. <laughs> like, everybody knows the 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 famous line, Nina Seraphita, my girl, is so our baby. Like, it's, there's also, on this record, he says, sleep with the gun and she don't snore. I was just like, okay, yes, thank you. I will take that. <laughs> this is the thing, a rap of 2018, incidentally, is that, our sidebar, that 
everything has to be a hashtag challenge now. And have you seen this uproar challenge? Yeah, I have seen the uproar challenge. There was the first it ain't, guy. It ain't going to work. The, the tracksuit guy that was did a front flip off of the back of his Kia and started Harlem shaking. Yeah. I, yeah. So basically, it's just, uh, you know, similar to the Shiggy challenge for In My Feelings for Drake. It's people just filming themselves jumping out of their car, mostly Harlem shaking, since Harlem shake was the dance that's associated with G-Dep special delivery. But uh, it's, I don't think it's going to work as a challenge just because the, the Harlem, not everybody can do the Harlem Shake. It's a good point. It requires. We should mention it's the, it's the OG Harlem Shake. The, from yeah, Harlem. yeah, the <laughs> not the one by Bauer uh, no, where you just no, kind of that you shake. know frantically move your limbs. Wait, what was so? What was your first oh shit moment? I was taken aback by Dedicate just because the criminally underrated 2015 album Colleague, well, yeah, 2015 album Collie Grove, uh, which was the 2 Chains, Lil Wayne joint project, uh, has a song on it called Dedicate where 2 Chains just kind of raps at length about uh, Wayne's importance to the game. And the story around it is that Wayne heard it for the first time and cried, which is, you know, like, great. I love to 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 think about two chains and Lil Wayne as being really good friends, <laughs> um, but on this record they basically stretch and chop up the sample of that song. If it wasn't for Wayne, it wouldn't be a lot of dudes in the game, including me. And then Wayne is just rapping like I've. It's so <laughs> it's so technically precise i was just like this is i was just like wow welcome welcome back i was happy because on his last couple of projects releases whatever you want to call them he's kind of just sound drained and this right. was like energetic and hungry again which was each, great each verse is kind of like its own entity too like a different window into like a style or a sound of of, of rapping mm -hmm. so it really is like technical acuity i mean it's just not to sound too nerdy but i think that's really what's on display here i guess i should probably clear up that mona lisa is not the worst song in the album guys <laughs> please stop tweeting me about it is that what you said on is that what you said on twitter i no, i said it in the in the exit survey oh right so basically kendrick lamar was a fan was a board like a vowed fan of Lil Wayne before, you know, he was talking about Sugar Free and DJ Quick, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The first time they actually got to collab was on that Mike Will Made It tape. This is like the two of them just being like, I'm the better rapper. No, I'm the better rapper for five minutes and 24 seconds. And it is amazing. But also like, I, where am I going to play this at? Like. Yeah. It's exhausting. It's it's definitely not a passive listen. Let's play a clip of that, like the last part where Kendrick Lamar is rapping in his his narrative, exasperated, good kid, mad city voice. Ah, every day she wake up with a different color makeup and a promise he could take her to the movie in the mall. Chilling with the liquor on the floor, fourth quarter for a minute on the clock, black mama with the bow. Papa Rossi looking at them both, popping up and take a picture, uh, probably on the internet blog. Like, that's really impressive, but are you, you know, listening to that in the car? Are you, <laughs> is that just in your headphones while you're walking somewhere? I mean, there's actually a lot of features yeah. uh, on this record, including Ashanti, Nivea, some names that we haven't heard in a while or heard music from in a while. You know, you mentioned that the, the album was off delayed, rumored to come out and didn't come out. And so, and that's been for years now. So there's a lot of songs on here, even the Travis song, which people were pointing at a Travis Scott tweet from years ago 
about being in the studio with Wayne and suggesting that that song came from that session from yeah. years ago. Yeah. Basically, what I'm getting at is a lot of the music might actually be old yeah. or older. The, and to me, that's not a bad thing. Well, this is, I guess, most evident from records like 5 to 12. There are 23 songs on this album, by the way. Yeah. 90 um, minutes long. Yeah, so it's, a, it's it's the same runtime as The Lion King. <laughs> from, uh, from track five to track 12 feels uniquely like 2014. Yeah. It actually struck me, we were talking about the Complex interview earlier and, and Jay-Z and, and Wayne aging. Jay-Z was 36 when Kingdom Come came out. And Wayne is 36 here for the release of Carter Five, so it's interesting to to kind of note that in, at the that state at these stages in their respective careers where they are, because you wouldn't say that this is like a mature Wayne album, would you? No, I wouldn't say that, but I would say that this is more vulnerable than past works. See, the album outro, the last song on the album is called Let It All Work Out, samples a Sampha song called Indecision, which is also really great. You should listen to that too. But Yeah, note to all rappers, if you want to get deep on a record, just sample Sampha. Always works. <laughs> Wayne basically admits to, he said before that he shot himself when he was 12, a uh, scar on the side of his head. Recently said that it was an accident, but in more recent interviews has you know, reveal that it's not an accident, but the first time he's really said it definitively, I think, mm -hmm. is on this record. He, you know, describes finding his mom's gun. He put the barrel to his chest. And then he, quote unquote, woke up with blood all around him. really vivid and, and poignant the way he the story unfolds or the way he describes uh that attempt so we asked this in the exit survey and you copped out of it but uh i'm gonna ask you now and put you on the spot now that we have carter five now that you've absorbed it where does it fall in the quintet what's the ranking right it is comfortably above the carter four which is what i was hoping for at most I still think that the Carter 2 is the best Wayne album, followed by the Carter 1, then the Carter 3, then Carter 5, then Carter 4. Interesting, interesting. I'm going to go Carter 1, Carter 3, Carter 2, Carter 5, Carter 4. Hmm. And there's like a greatest hits Carter quintet set. I think that album will be unfuckwittable. You know what? I think that too. You know what? Maybe I'll just make it and put it on Spotify. Maybe that should be this week's Spotify playlist. Do it. Donnie. Yes. Thank you very much for joining me to talk about the Carter Five and doing lighter <laughs> flicks. <laughs> Thank you, Micah. All right, guys, we're going to take a break to talk about Sonos Beam, the smart, compact soundbar for your TV and the newest addition to easy-to-use home sound system. And Sonos Beam, I really can't tell you enough about how it's made watching movies so much more immersive. I don't want 
the sound to just surround me. I want it in me. And I was watching Escape from New York the other night, and it sounded way better than it had any right to sound. Also, Beam lets you play everything you love, from music and radios to TV, podcasts, and more. Even use AirPlay to enjoy sound from your iPhone or iPad, all with rich sound that fills the room. Enjoy deep bass and detailed stereo separation for music, plus crystal clear dialogue for TV and movies, like I just said. All it takes is one cord to connect Beam to your TV, and it syncs with your existing remote. Or get hands-free control with Alexa, which is built in. The Sonosat walks you through setup step-by-step, step, but if you don't want to bother setting up your speakers, Sonos will send someone to do it for you. That's right. If you live in any major metropolitan area, up and running, we'll have a Sonos expert deliver and set up your system absolutely free. I actually had somebody come and do this for me. The setup took probably all of about a half hour. We had a lovely conversation about music and the weather. Just order from Sonos.com and select up and running at checkout if you qualify. Okay, and now a radical shift. We are going to do recommendations with Chris Ryan, who is back again to talk about some more punk music. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I'm glad I've arrived at this place in my career where it's like I'm uh, just uh, emeritus punk <laughs> recommender. Gotta change the masthead. <laughs> um, Chris Ryan, executive producer, I mean, sorry, executive editor at The Ringer, Doesn't matter. mogul, person. Punks don't care about titles. <laughs> you were also in a punk band? I, I was in a uh, a band in Boston, short-lived, that was inspired by the San Diego scream hardcore, like screamo scene, like post-hardcore scene. Mm-hmm. So like Antioch Arrow and Angel Hair, we were called, we were called Crash Activated. <laughs> Which yeah. is, We yeah. had like 45 second songs. I mean, <laughs> we had an eight minute set, <laughs> and I got thrown into a drum kit once. Spastic energy, yeah, yeah, yeah you know, just like this podcast. <laughs> um, right, you are actually here to talk about something else—a box set that arrived over the weekend. Yeah, thirty-two track anthology of uh, the post-clash music or pre-clash music, in some cases, of one of my musical and cultural heroes, Joe Strummer. Mm-hmm. And you know. Uh, for me, I am very attracted to great amalgamators, like people who are able to draw on um, different, seemingly divergent cultural strains and make them into something that like weaves together and makes sense. I think actually that was one of the things that I was uh, enamored with by Anthony Bourdain, for instance, mm-hmm. like outside of music. Um, and he saw the connections between cooking and music and film and travel and and strummer you know was able to bring together a lot of these different strains of um of a sort of post world war 2 cool mm-hmm. and weave them together to form this kind of image of this outsider rock poet and he drew on things like rockabilly he drew on um dub he drew on Irish folk music and and Woody Guthrie and all this stuff, and he weaves it all together. Well, you also said he also drew on some early hip hop elements. Yeah, and- especially when when the Clash came to New York mm-hmm. to record Sandinista, and they played a uh, a 
basically a residency at a nightclub in Times Square called Bonds. Mm-hmm. And they just like set up shop. And I think they had like Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel open for them. And they were, you know, infamously like, you know, now you could go back and be like, it's cultural tourism. But like, they were obsessed with BLS, the radio station back in New York. And were just like making tapes of the radio shows of Red mm-hmm. Alert and stuff like that. And that's the thing that you you, you got to love about Joe Strummer is whether or not you think some of his songs are better than others. He was just this relentlessly curious person. And it's something that I think uh, in the internet age, it's a little bit different because like all this stuff is kind of at our fingertips, you mm-hmm. know, and all this stuff then gets um, put through the strainer of our social media accounts and being like, oh, like I can just say like, this is what I like. And I can just say, this is what I like, you know, but to imagine yourself as like this person before any of that was possible and like you take you for example mm-hmm. right and you like manchester united and you like anime and you like new orleans rap music and you like you know like all this stuff yeah but to imagine like a figure coming along that somehow was like yes, <laughs> combines all of those yes, things yeah. you know what i mean and that's how it felt yeah. when i was 17 or 18 and i got into his music and i was like so carl perkins jim jarmusch sergio leone Punk rock, Lee Perry, and hip hop are all cool at the same time in the same person. That's like an unbelievable package, mm. you know. And that's that was sort of what really drew me to him. Uh, you know, like we could talk about the Clash if you want to, but this box set uh, it's called Oh One, which is a reference to his pre-Clash band, the One Oh Oneers, and it basically spans what he did after the clash and the class kind of like crashed and burned pretty bad with cut the crap, which was basically not the clash. It was just strummer and nobody liked that record. Mm. Um, and then he basically made an album called earthquake weather, which was very poorly received and is essentially like a record that's made by a ghost. And even on the cover of the album, it's him. I think it's in Los Angeles. He's standing on a diving board and he's shot in silhouette against all these palm trees and just looks like an apparition <laughs> there. It's like, yeah. it's like, a facsimile of what you want a Joe Strummer rock record to be. And, you know, he went through this period of time that was known as his wilderness years where he's just kind of like making soundtracks. He made a soundtrack. Do you ever you know much about Alex Cox? Alex Cox. He's a director of Repo Man. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so Alex Cox, Repo Man, and he's like, oh shit, this guy's going to be like this big deal filmmaker. Uh-huh. And then he like kind of like just goes off, off the menu and makes this movie called Walker, which is Ed Harris in 1857 playing a southern like farmer or rancher like some rich southern guy Mm -hmm. who decides to elect himself president of nicaragua and raise an army and go to nicaragua but it's basically an allegory about the contra situation wow and strummer did this like crazy spaghetti western score for the movie he then starred in an alex uh, alex cox literally a spaghetti western movie just called straight to hell which is uh just joe strummer like and the pogues in mexico like shooting each other and drinking copious amounts of coffee (laughs) Uh, so he's like doing all these like weird experiments but basically what happens in the mid 90s is he discovers ecstasy Uh. and he starts popping up at these music festivals in England doing these things called Strummerville uh, which is essentially at these like campfire communities at like Glastonbury where a bunch of musicians would come by and they would play like bongos and shit. And I, I remember when I was a teenager, <laughs> this is when this was happening. And uh-huh. I was like, this motherfucker used to be in The Clash. Like, like, this isn't punk. Like, this isn't leather jackets. This isn't like spitting on, on like neo-Nazis' faces. Right. This I mean, like, like, but it's also yeah. just kind of the natural progression of an artist that 
is, you know, more mellowed out in their later years, yeah, despite being extremely, absolutely. you know, anti-establishment early on. I think that the, his later records were described when they were recorded. The recording sessions were described as being recorded in uh, spliff-soaked, flag-draped bunkers in North <laughs> London. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I, which I is not. I, I'd be interested to see what the ringer was like if we were in a <laughs> split-soaked, flag-draped bunker in North London. What guan? What guan? Yeah, this is all a useful. I mean, like, useful context for me because my entire understanding of the Clash, you know, came from I've I learned about them after I saw that 2008 movie with. Um, Tom Wilkinson, who and Idris Elba mm-hmm. and Gerard Butler called Rock and Rolla, and Tom Wilkinson's son, Johnny Quid. Yeah, Toby Kebbell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. leader of the Quid Lickers. He used to stand in front of his child- the mirror in his the floor length mirror in his childhood bedroom and sing Bank Robber by the Clash. Yeah. Yeah, it's I really love good, that right? song. <laughs> yeah. And then I was just like, I need to know more. Yeah. And uh, so it was, but I mean, like the obsession stopped short after like a month. But yeah, I mean, yeah. as as obsessions do. I, so this, like this, this anthology tracks like his ups and downs, you know, and there are demos, there's music he did for soundtracks, there are uh, covers of Bob Marley did, that he did with Johnny Cash. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he... Died suddenly at 50 after playing, like shortly after playing a gig uh, for striking firefighters in England where Hmm. he and Mick Jones unofficially for one night only out of complete happenstance reunited the clash. And we lost him at a very, at an age where I think that he would have had a really nice decade or two left of, of kind of being this. uh, Father figure to music. And Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a real shame. And I think that his, band that he had been in at that time, the Mescaleros, were starting to really find kind of their commercial and critical footing. Like people were really starting to respond to their music. They they would go to towns and play like five nights at like in Brooklyn or whatever. You know what I mean? Like Uh they they were starting to get some momentum and he passed away very early. And it's, it's strange to read about him now because he just seems like it's not even like, oh, like it's unfashionable. It just seems like a set of ideals and ways of thinking about art and music that are almost extinct. You know, like they asked him, Perry Farrell asked him to, the, the he offered the Clash like 5 million bucks for like 50 gigs for Lollapalooza. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you do this and you go on the Lollapalooza tour as the Clash and give you guys $5 million. And his response was, uh, it was pretty verbose, but his response was, if you're confronted with the choice to take $1 million for the death of an artist, or you can live as an artist forever, you're going to take the second option. <laughs> <laughs> which wow. I really like okay. <laughs> that's corny now but he is the best kind of corny he actually believed in shit I definitely find that sort of bleeding heart commitment to an artistic ideal very inspiring yeah, yeah. In, in you know it's like, like a football of, manager who would rather lose 5-4 than win one nothing. you know yeah 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 Go, going for broke so to speak yeah. so on the box set though yes. um, what is the I, I read some things about it. Uh, it was basically edited by Grammy winner Peter J. Moore, who said that he noticed some things that you know Strummer used to do with his demos, where there was a lot of blank space on mm-hmm. the tapes. 
but I don't know much about it. I haven't listened to it yet. Yeah, it's like a little bit. There's there's a there's a little bit of demos in there. There's some unreleased tracks. Uh, my favorite of those is Blues on the River, which is this 1984 kind of folk punk jam. White clear rum and blues on the river and rum. Loveless in the darkness, flooding through the rain and rum. Uh, there's a song on there from an uh, early Keanu Reeves movie called Permanent Record. Hmm. Uh, there's a song called Trash City that's really, really, really good that's on this thing. There's a couple of Mescalero's song, and that was when he was kind of going for this acid punk thing where basically he had discovered ecstasy, discovered dance music, had been hanging out with uh, some people from the Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses, going to these festivals, and tried to make this hybrid of dub, dance music, and punk rock. That, ultimately, I think you could probably put up against some, like, world beat music that you would hear in a cafe hmm. and not be that dissimilar, but, like, the when you listen to it outside of the context of, like, the world music phenomenon that kind of swept... Uh, America after a while like it sounds a little bit different and that has the Mescalero has made some really great music like Yala Yala um, if anybody saw the short-lived David Milch show uh, John from Cincinnati the theme song from that that show is Johnny Appleseed which is a fucking awesome song and then there are like really good rock songs like Coma Girl and you know I, I don't know like he he just did all these different things and he was able to slip in and out of all these different genres so seamlessly and the, and the box set really captures that really well right so it's like and it, it's illustrative of his versatility as yeah. a i mean like well his chameleonic tendencies as an artist yeah and his lyrics are are you know throughout his career are so detailed they're so uh invested in the struggle between people versus institutions people versus like labor versus management mm -hmm. the 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 99 versus the one percent you know um I think that it was interesting. He that he very much came of age at a time when the Labour Party was basically repudiated by conservatism in England, and Thatcher took over, and that's like the backdrop for the clash. It's mm. like the rise of the Tories in in England. I I don't know what he would have thought of today. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, I, I would love to have heard his records about about Brexit, about about Trump, about everything that was happening in the world today. What uh, what would you say is the the song that you've I guess stuck with or have listened to the most from this box set over the weekend. Burning Lights, which is a, a, a it's a song from an obscure movie called I Hired a Contract Killer. Burning lights in the desert, such a sign only you would know. You're running tires, they're out on pressure, such a sign only you would know. And it is uh at once about a drug-muling long-haul truck driver, mm -hmm. but is also about the impossibility of leaving a legacy and, and feeling like you, he, you're burning the candle at both ends and you leave don't leave a trace of yourself behind. You know what a song of this is? You know what song of mine that is like a favorite of mine that is sort of like that? What's that? Provider by NERD. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like, they're very much, the, they're very much very related. Similar. Very yeah. related. Is this does that song happen in a certain scene in the movie? Do you remember? I don't remember. I don't mm. even know if I've seen. I I I don't even know if I've seen that movie. But mm. I would recommend if people are really really down, do one. Check out Walker and Straight to Hell if you can, because they're both like '80s movies where you're like, wow, like seven people saw this movie. Like they, <laughs> people were really on some. 
IDGAF stuff back then. <laughs> uh, so, I, and that that was the spaghetti western that had Straight the, to Hell is the spaghetti western, and Walker is the movie about a guy deciding he runs Nicaragua in the 1850s. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I would love to try and pitch that movie now. Here's my idea. Ed Harris just decides he runs Nicaragua. I got Joe Strummer on the soundtrack. By the way, it's an allegory. <laughs> Can I get $30 million, $50 million? How much money? Uh, but back to the box set yeah, one yeah. time. The, 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 you said that it basically describes or illustrates all these different eras, all these different things that Joe Strummer was capable of. Does mm-hmm. it move in chronological order? No, is there, it's all over the place. Oh, it's all over As the place? It should be. Yeah. Um, what would you say your favorite, if you had to choose one, like press to do it, could you be able to choose your favorite Joe Strummer era? Aside from The Clash? Yeah. That's tough. I mean, because his wilderness years were pretty extensive and there's not a lot of, uh, I mean, by his own admission, he he really lacked confidence. I mean, for somebody who is looked upon as essentially by some people as like his generations, Bob Dylan or Woody Guthrie, mm-hmm. he basically was like, I put out Earthquake Weather. I felt like the record label abandoned it. I feel like critics hated it. And I had, he essentially has like 10 years where he doesn't feel any confidence at all. And even when he gets the Mescaleros together, he's going around basically hat in hand, like asking Alan McGee from creation and trying to get people to put these records out. And he finally gets Tim Armstrong from Rancid to give him a check for the sort of distribution rights of the record, I think in America, but it it was really hard for him to get his music off the ground. And, and, you know, so it's, it's all defined by the struggle that he had throughout the post clash career. I think I re I personally actually really like his last Mescaleros record. Not, not the it's called Street Core, mm-hmm. and it's got a couple of um, of really really good tracks. There's one that Pearl Jam actually has no, been known to cover called called uh, Arms Aloft in Aberdeen. That's off of uh, Joe Strum and the Mescalero Street Core that came out. Um, I guess in 03. So I think these are like the songs that he was finishing or still working on when, when, and when he passed away. Um, you know, some people are really, really, really into uh, Global Agogo, but that's like almost a little too bongo by a campfire for my tastes. Mm-hmm. There's some good songs on it, but I, I like rock art in the X ray style, which is the first Mescaleros record. All the Mescaleros records have good stuff on them, though. Mm-hmm. This is a different type of like posthumous collection of music mm-hmm. than say the larger commercial things like say any of the posthumous Michael Jackson albums where you can't really tell what is what like who which new producers are working on it which one yeah, whatever sure. and then there's also other posthumous albums like Don't Lose This by Pop Staples which came out in 2015 uh Jeff Tweedy basically made it so that a bunch of mono recordings from forever ago were basically made faithful to pop staple style. Um, would you say that like the strummer box set falls in the latter half of that, where it's just kind of like, this is everything that just was. And yeah, I mean, I think it's supposed to be a document as much as it's supposed to be now, uh, any kind of like cohesive album. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really appreciate the fact that they, uh, sequenced it the way they wanted to rather than against some sort of chronology. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that what it's supposed to illustrate is his, relentless kind of wandering spirit Mm -hmm. and like where he was always like pushing his music, but there was always this core to it. There was always this incredible 
compass, his this moral compass about his music that like was about real people and real struggles. And uh, you know, at time has treated him. I think that people now look back at him and they're like, you know, this was like a really important artist. This is, it, I, I think like you were talking to me a little bit about The Clash yesterday and we, you know, of course me and you and Kevin Clark were standing there and like me and Kevin were like, what's your top five Clash songs? And then we listed like 62 Clash songs. <laughs> the Clash have been canonized to the point where you basically like, I can listen to them for a year and then I ne- almost need to take like a year off mm-hmm. before I can go back and actually hear them again. And I go through like these in- really intensely like pretty involved clash phases where I I have like this playlist called Bank Robber, which is just like all the clash stuff that I love and all the stuff that informed it, you know, like all this dub and all this rockability that informed it. But you can, it's, it's like a museum piece at this point almost. I mean, London, London Calling is like one of the five or six best rock records ever made. Mm -hmm. This is more like if you were walked up into an attic and someone threw open this chest and there was all these like scraps of paper, but then there were some finished drawings and then there were some paintings and then there were some videos and like you had like an artist's musings in whole, you know what I mean? And that's right. what I like about this one, this, this collection. Kind of getting to look at their creative process, but also what's going on in yeah. their head and just... Yeah, it, the hits and misses. Yeah. yeah. Well, Chris... Thank you very much for yeah, joining man, me welcome. again to talk about punk music. <laughs> uh, if you're out there, you should definitely watch Straight to Hell, was it? So yeah, I would say this is your this is your homework. If you haven't listened to The Clash, like do literally unsubscribe to this podcast <laughs> and go listen to The Clash. Uh, don't do that. Sorry, mid-roll. Uh, and if you want to watch some cool stuff, there's a great, great Clash documentary called West Way to the World. Mm-hmm. Um, that's That's... Your absolute on ramp to understanding the Clash. Then, if you want to check out some Strummer stuff, the best movie he's in, I think, mm-hmm. is Mystery Train, directed by Jim Jim Jarmusch, which is uh, several different stories set in Memphis, all kind of about Elvis mm-hmm. or people who think they're Elvis or people <laughs> who like are obsessed with Elvis. Jarmusch, uh, Joe Strummer's in one of those sections of Mystery Train. I love Mystery Train. Then he did the soundtrack to this movie, Walker, which is nuts, and he's in Straight to Hell, which is even more nuts. But check this check this box set out. I, I think that there's a couple songs on here, man, that that still go against anything you want to put up. Blues on the River, Coma Girl, Yala Yala, Johnny Appleseed, Trash City, Burning Lights, like all these songs. Like I, I I'd go up against anyone with it, with these. Well, all right, there you have it. Go listen to the Joe Strummer box set. That's it. That's all we got. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to Donnie Kwok and Chris Ryan for stopping by. Shout out my producers, Zach Mack and Bobby Wagner. Don't forget to check out our playlist that we will be updating every week with the songs that we're listening to. We'll link to that is in the description. Also, please rate and subscribe if you like the show. We would really appreciate it. Peace. See you next week. Once again, thanks to Sonos. Meet Sonos Beam, the smart, compact soundbar for your TV. Beam lets you play everything you love, from music and radio to movies, TV, podcasts, and more. All with rich sound that fills the room. It's super simple to set up, but if you don't even want to bother, Sonos will send someone to do it for you. That's right. If you live in any major metropolitan area, up and running will have a Sonos expert deliver and set up your system absolutely free. The the Beam is awesome. Uh, There's this new podcast from marvel called wolverine the long night and it's very ambient and creepy and has a massive atmospheric weirdness to it and 
it kind of fills my entire apartment and I, I can't listen to it after dark now because I feel like I'm in the woods of Northern Alaska tracking Wolverine down. Anyway, just order Sonos.com and select up and running at checkout if you qualify.